Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Romans chapter 15, please. Romans chapter 15. It is a great uh, privilege and joy to be able to be here and be involved in Bible conference. I thank the Lord uh, for it, and I hope our time this afternoon will be profitable. Uh, I've been praying to that end. Our congregation took time Sunday night to pray for that, and I know there's folks even praying now as we take time together. So I graduated from here in 1983. So my senior year, second semester, I took a class called Expository Preaching that the year before, back then in our junior year, we took pulpit speech, it was called. And I had uh, Mark Minnick, when he was a PhD student, was my pulpit speech teacher. And he really encouraged us to take this class uh, the next year, Expository Preaching, and so I signed up for it second semester, senior year, when I had listened to, uh, it was Mr. Minnick, Dr. Minnick, talk about it. Uh, he, had, he had really sung the praises of the class, but also I remembered him saying something that when he had finished his assignments for the class, that he had completed all the study he needed to do to be able to preach through, I think it was either first or second Thessalonians, because you, you picked a book and then you studied that for that semester and prepared. So that's the way he sort of teed me up for it. I got the class, uh, we got the assignments, I took the book of Ephesians. And what we were supposed to do is uh, do all the background study in the book, outline the book, prepare a series of messages from the book, do word studies all the way through the book. So, you know, so, I, I went after it. I went after it a little bit late, coming toward the end of the semester, and, and uh, this is pre-computers, back when they had these things called typewriters, and I wasn't very good at typing, so I drafted a, a GA uh, who was just a wonderful person. She might even be in here this morning, Jane Smith on the faculty now and drafted her to help me out. And unfortunately, I got everything to her late, and I think she spent a whole weekend typing this stuff all up. And then I had to write the Greek words in because we didn't have Greek fonts on the typewriters that great at that point. So did it all. I show up to class with the assignment. I've got this notebook full of stuff. I look around at the people next to me, and they've got like, just like little thin file folders. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, you guys are going to get torched. Because I had heard what Minnick had said, and I thought, you know, you, you, gotta, you just got to pour it on. So I turned it in, got it back. The good news was I got an A. But right next to the A, the professor had written, probably more work than you needed to do, but you'll never regret it. And I thought to myself, oh, you are so wrong. I regret it, and I'm sure Jane Smith regrets it. So 41 years later, I publicly apologized to her. Uh, but but it, was, it was a classic example of an assignment not being clear and causing problems for the students. You ever have that happen? Right? And I, easy, easy. <laughs> and I've been a professor at a seminary for 35 years, and I'm sure I have tormented students in the same way with a lack of clarity that results in anxiety for the student and not sure how it's going to work out at the end of the semester. Here's what I'm glad to say to you. When Jesus gave us an assignment called the Great Commission, he was very clear about what he wanted done. He actually 
was quite redundant in making sure we knew that because at the end of each gospel, he gave us some variation of what that assignment was. At the beginning of the book of Acts, it was restated again. And then an entire book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, shows us how they carried out the assignment, what the church was supposed to do. And then to add on top of that, there are these letters that are written. And in those letters, every once in a while, you find a window open up where the master missionary, the Apostle Paul, talks about his mission's work so that we can actually see it now sort of through the side what they were doing and what they believed God had commissioned them to do so that you and I, 2,000 years later, aren't left going, I wonder what Jesus really wants us to do. We know what the assignment is. We know what he's given to us to do, but sometimes it can be uh, assumed by us. Right? We, we grow up around it, we hear it, we hear talk about it, and we don't necessarily sharpen in our thinking in the way that we really ought to, given the importance of the one who gave us the assignment and of the assignment itself. Romans 15 is one of those windows that opens up for us where the Apostle Paul is talking about his ministry and he's talking about it in a way that helps us understand not only how he viewed the task, but actually how he viewed the world in which that task was being carried out. And so what I'd like to do this afternoon really is just take some time to remind us in general terms what the task is and then take some time in this passage to see sort of where that task standed, uh, stood for Paul's time and then think about where it stands for us today. So let's start in verses 8 and 9, please, of Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse 8 says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. You can see in verses 8 and 9 that there's really sort of two dimensions to what is the mission of Jesus from which our mission flows. Jesus came into the world, it says in verse 8, on behalf of the circumcision, that is the Jewish people, the Israelites, in order to confirm the truth of the promises to the fathers or the patriarchs. So if you go back through your Old Testament, you can see the unfolding promises of God to the patriarchs in which Jesus came as the Christ to fulfill them. The seed of Abraham in whom all the nations would be blessed, the son of David who would set up his kingdom and rule in righteousness, the one who is going to come as the servant to bring redemption and ultimately will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus came to confirm all of those promises, to use the language of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, in him, that is Jesus, in him, all the promises of God are yes. And through him is the offering of our amen to the glory of God. 
Every blessing that comes to us comes through Jesus Christ. And every approach we make to God in worship must go through Jesus Christ. He is the one who's the fulfillment of all those promises. But then in verse 9, he turns to the Gentiles. And notice what it says there, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. I'm going to start at the back end of that, because I think that helps us think about the mission that Jesus came into the world for and then commissioned us to engage in. The foundation of that mission is the mercy of God. All of humanity is under God's judgment because we've defied him. We, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're living according to the course of this world. We are by nature the children of wrath. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says. Verse 4 says, but God who is rich in mercy. Right, that's what this is talking about. God was under no obligation to save us. He was under no obligation to rescue us from condemnation, but he showed mercy through Jesus Christ. He sent for us a word of rescue before the coming judgment. One day Jesus is going to come back and he's going to come back in judgment against all of those who have rejected God, but he will rescue those who've trusted in him from the wrath to come. They will receive mercy because they've looked to Christ and called on his name. And that's why we go out to the ends of the earth to announce to people that a day of judgment is coming and we're all guilty, but God has offered you mercy. You can be forgiven. You can have eternal life. You can be welcomed into the presence of God rather than face the consequences of your sin because Jesus came, lived righteously, died as a sacrifice and substitute for sinners, rose from the dead, and he ascended in victory and he will return in glory. The mercy of God is actually the foundation of the mission. But look back in that phrase, it says that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. I think probably the easiest way to see what Paul's doing here is to think back to the beginning of this book. Romans chapter 1 starts to talk about the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven. And then Romans 1 details out why that is. And at the very head of that, he says, when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Neither were grateful, right? So humanity turned away from God and instead of worshiping the creator, began to worship the creation. Rather than follow the creator and give him honor, we decided to take things into our own hands. We dishonored God. We refused to glorify him. And here's what the redemptive work of Jesus Christ does. It displays mercy so that we might return to being worshipers. That we might one day gather in the presence of Jesus Christ and we will worship him for his mercy. We will confess him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the whole focal point of the mission is God's work through Christ to restore the glory of his creation 
that brings him honor and glory because of who he is. Now notice the word in verse 9, Gentiles, because this is where we begin to start to open up the window. This word Paul uses is actually the same word that's translated nations in Matthew chapter 28. It's used throughout the New Testament, translated as nations or Gentiles, because it it reflects effectively non-Jewish people. And that's why I believe the translators are translating it Gentile here, because in verse 8, it's the circumcision. So now he's talking about the non-Jewish world, and and it's that non-Jewish world that's going to glorify God for his mercy. Because Ephesians 2 says, we were without God, we were cut off from the covenants, we were strangers and aliens, but God reached out through Christ to bring us to himself. Now this word, and you, I think we already heard it through the conference, ethne, we get ethnic from. But when we look at the mission that is, as it's described throughout the New Testament, I think there's two dimensions of it that we need to, we need to think carefully about and make sure they're balanced. The first, I'm going to put it under two words. The first is the word places. That when the New Testament talks about the assignment we've been given, it talks about it in geographic terms. We are supposed to go into all the world. We're supposed to spread the gospel to every place. In fact, Paul uses those kinds of terms in this passage. Drop down to the end of verse 19, if you would. Notice what he says there in the second part of the verse. He says, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Okay, I need you to use your imagination here for a moment. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Down here is Jerusalem. If you go from Jerusalem up around the Mediterranean Sea, you go through what was called in the Bible Asia Minor, we call it today Turkey. You'd cross over into that, that little area that comes down like this. It's called Macedonia and Achaia in the Bible. It's modern Greece. If you go up to the northwest corner of that area, that's Illyricum. Think about this way. See Italy over here? Using your imagination. All right, there's Italy. Take the boot and push it backward. When the heel hits the ground there, that's Illyricum, or what we would call modern Albania. So here's Paul talking about the advance of the gospel, and he's talking about it in geographic terms. From Jerusalem all the way through Asia Minor, Macedonia, Cai, up to Illyricum. He's describing it as advancing and spreading out in that way. Notice also in verse 23, he uses geographic statements. He says in 23, but now having no more place in these parts or no more room in these regions. So he's talking about that space that we just talked about. Look at verse 24. You see another geographic marker there. He says, whensoever I have taken my journey into Spain. Right? So he talks about the place of Spain. And in fact, it's implied when he talks about in verse 20, he says, not where Christ was named. Right? Because he could have said, not among whom Christ has been preached. But he actually says not where Christ has been named. 
And that shouldn't surprise us because all the way back in the commission passages, Luke 24, Jesus says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name beginning at Jerusalem and going to the remote parts of the earth. Acts chapter 1, you know this text, right? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the remote parts of the earth. If you've read through the book of Acts, you know there's this scene that Luke puts in there that, that keeps recounting the spread of God's word. It spread throughout that whole region. It spread throughout that whole region. The gospel was spreading in that way. In, in Acts, it talks about Paul parking in Ephesus for two years, and the word went throughout all of Asia Minor. When Paul talks about the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, you became a model or an example for from you sounded out the word of the Lord into all Macedonia and Achaia. Those are places. All right, so, so here's one element that we need to not lose. And, and I'm not going to go into all the reasons and all the ramifications of it, but what's happened, say, in the last five decades or so, the second word we're going to talk about, peoples, has almost eclipsed places. And, and the fact is the New Testament talks about both of them. And it's important for us, particularly in our day, to remember both of them, because what I just said might miss out on the second term that ethne is used to talk about, and that is what we'd call people groups. Right? You and I tend to hear the word nation, and we think of a geopolitical unit. Right? The United States is a nation. Canada is a nation. India is a nation. But that's a very modern way of thinking about it. The reality of it is, for most of human history, it was more about people groups that shared a common language and culture. It was what we would use in the New Testament does, things like tribes and tongues and peoples, right? So here's the reason why that's significant. Think for a moment. I just mentioned India. We think of India, and again, you'd think of a place on the map, a subcontinent that is the, the largest country in the world, 1.4 billion people. And so we might think, okay, we got to take the gospel to India. And if we only thought place, we wouldn't be thinking clear enough biblically. Because the fact is that inside of that place, there are over a thousand people groups, well over a thousand people groups. Do you realize there are 60 languages in India that over a million people speak each one of those, right? So you have a million people that speak 60, there's 60 groups of a million people that all have their own language, right? We have two graduates of our seminary that are down in South India, one's in Cochin, the other one's in Coimbatore, right? It's maybe a four or five hour ride in a van, maybe if traffic's in trouble in the mountains as you're going, they speak completely different languages. Right? I mean, I know when I come down from Michigan to South Carolina, I might hear a different language, right? But it's, it's actually just a different dialect of the same language. 
We're talking about people who cannot communicate to each other because they speak entirely different languages in the space that would be like driving from here up to uh, middle of Kentucky. Radically different languages. So if you're going to actually take the gospel there, you have to target a people and communicate the gospel in a language that they can understand and adjust to a cross-cultural move in that way. So what we're supposed to think when we think about the New Testament is that we go into places, but we're looking for peoples. Right? The gospel is supposed to go to every place and among all peoples so that they would glorify God for his mercy. That's what Jesus commissioned us to do. And he said to do it until the end of the age. Until he comes back, we're to go to every place among every people until the end of the age. So now I'd like to do now is actually look at how Paul thought about the world in light of that responsibility. And, and so it's really just, just looking at the wording of the text to help us think about the mission that Jesus entrusted to us. And if we look at what Paul says here, I believe we can draw some conclusions. The first would be this, is that there are some places where Christ has not been named. Look at verse 20 again, please. Yea, so I have strived to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written... To whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they that, uh, they that have not heard shall understand. So here's the first thing we can see from what Paul thinks about the world. There are parts of the world where Christ has never been named. Right? And that's, that's a fundamental reality that is still true. Right? Look at in verse 20 again, because there's a second way in which he describes it. It's at the end of verse 20. He says, lest I should build upon another man's foundation. There are places in the world where the foundation has been laid. Right? There's places where Christ has not been named. And there are places where the foundation has been laid. Look just right before verse 19. Look at the phrase he uses there. At the end of the verse, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. That's, a, that's an important uh, statement in this context because Paul's saying from Jerusalem around to Illyricum, I have fu I fully preached the gospel of Christ. I have completed the task that I was given to do to preach the gospel of Christ. So much so that he says actually in verse 23, there's no more place for me. There's no more room for work here. I mean, think about how big that area is. Jerusalem to Illyricum. Paul, has everybody come to Christ there? What do you think he'd say? He'd say no. And we don't even have to guess because somewhere right about over here, there's a city called Thessalonica. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he writes to them and he says, not all have faith. So Paul's mission shouldn't be described as seeing everybody in that area come to Christ. 
His mission is tied to that phrase in verse 20 about laying a foundation. I don't want to build where another man has laid a foundation because that language for Paul is significant. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. And what he's talking about there is the church of God at Corinth. Because in verse 9, he says, you, second person plural, right? Not, not you individually, but you all, ye are God's field and God's building. Then he goes down to verse 16 and 17, and he talks about them being the temple of God, the dwelling place by his spirit. Paul laid the foundation at Corinth, and someone else is building on it. That's what he means when he says, I've fully preached the gospel. I have no more room for work. He's saying there are places that used to be mission fields that now should be missionary forces. Right? The gospel landed there. People came to Christ. They were organized into local assemblies. They had spiritual leader put, leadership put in place, and now they were responsible for spreading the word in the region around it. We see that repeated multiple times in the book of Acts. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You were a model church, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord. I mean, think about it this way. We probably would think if someone said, you know, I'll just use mine. Someone showed up at our church and said, hey, I'm a missionary to Allen Park. And I'd go, well, why are you a missionary to Allen Park? I mean, we're here. We're supposed to be reaching the people in Allen Park and seeing the gospel spread in the region around us. Why, why do you think we're a mission field in that kind of way? Because most of us would instinctively go, no, it's our job. Well, actually, that's the way it's supposed to be everywhere. Every place the gospel goes, it is to, to be planted in the soil and raise up congregations that will be, will be spreading the gospel into that region. And Paul's saying, there's a type of field in which my work is done. So there's places where Christ has not been named, and then there's places where the foundation actually has been laid, and that work should be advancing on its own. It should be indigenous at that point. It should be, it should be actually multiplying through the healthy spread of the gospel. So between them is implied a kind of place which has been engaged with the gospel but has not been completed yet. And notice the language in verse 22 because this, I think, is the point that he's making in verse 22. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. What's the cause that kept Paul from coming to the Romans on his way to Spain? It was that the work wasn't done yet, right? This hadn't been completed. So until he reached the point where he felt like there was a sufficient indigenous 
reproducing healthy church movement, the work wasn't done. Okay, so I know I'm, I'm sort of walking you through it. Now let's sort of step back and think about it in terms of sometimes the way people talk about missions, right? This group we would normally talk about as being reached, right? They, the, the, the gospel has come there. Converts have been won. They've been formed into congregations and they are self-governing, self-supporting, self-propagating. They're doing the work, just like we would think all of us come from places like that. We are no longer a mission field. We're supposed to be a missionary force. At the other end of it are places where Christ has not been named. Nobody is actually taking the gospel there at all. They're not just unreached, they're unengaged. Nobody, nobody has taken the gospel to them. There is not a witness for Christ there. And based on Romans chapter 10, if they have not heard, they cannot believe and they cannot call. And God's heart for them in verse 21 is that those who have not seen will hear, that they will get the gospel. So between that point and this one is a massive area that we would actually call the unreached. It's not that nothing's being done there, but the work is so, uh, so early or so, I, don't, I, I hate to use this word because I don't want to impugn it, but so shallow. It hasn't gotten deep enough. It hasn't gotten strong enough that it is still in the need of outside workers like the Apostle Paul. It's dependent on it. That's the unreached. On the front end of that unreached, would be not unengaged, but really sort of the frontier of reaching them. Okay, so you can think about the fields of the world just like that. So no one taking the gospel to them, the gospel having just barely been introduced, the, the field almost ready to stand on its own two feet, so to speak, to reach itself and then completed. It's, it's a missionary force. So let's talk some numbers here. Eight, over eight billion people in the world. You realize that, that at least 41%, 42, you get numbers changed, but, but, but pretty close to half of the world is in these sections. In fact, one out of every four people on this planet, one out of every four people on this planet would be down on this end, right? They are either completely unengaged or the gospel work there is so light that you would be looking at less than one out of every 10,000 people have come to Christ, right? The, the gospel is not shining brightly there yet. One out of every four people on this planet, all right? So 
4.3 billion people, couple billion down at this end of it. That's where we are. And, and we're still in that kind of a position. And, and here, here's what's a little sobering about it. Do you realize that if you take, take 3,000, I mean, it's not all who's here, but let's say 3,000 people, all right? 300 of those, 300 of those are on this end of the missionary task. Three, three are on this end. Right? The, 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 the efforts being made, obviously, clearly, over here, there's zero. Right? So you can go, go 3,000 missionaries, 300 to the unreached, three to the frontier of the unreached, zero over here, right? Because this is unengaged. So for one quarter of the world's population, one out of every 1,000 missionaries is going. One out of every 1,000 is going to the 25% who have no connection virtually to any Christian witness. That's, that's stunning, isn't it? I mean, that is just stunning. When we think about that, that means really, if you go this way, think about it this way, all right? So there's one missionary. To, if we filled this room, and I think filled Rode, I have, first floor of Rodaver. All right, you fill this, you fill the first floor of that, there's one missionary per that crowd for this end. You come down here, it's one missionary per seven million. The state of Tennessee. It's like having one person to take the gospel to everybody in the state of Tennessee. That's stunning, isn't it? That here we are 2,000 years into it, and there's still so much to be done. There's so much needs to happen. Think about it this way, the city of Indianapolis. Okay? The third largest city in Yemen. Basically the same population. 500 churches. Zero. Zero. No one there to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for 800 and some thousand people with no witness for Christ. Not even really the opportunity for them even to just bump into a Christian. Right? That's what this text is showing us in terms of how we think about the field. So what? Well, so let me, let me try to answer that for you, all right? Do you realize this is our job? When Jesus gave the Great Commission, he didn't give it to missionaries. He gave it to his disciples. And in fact, 
He gave it in anticipation of local assemblies because you know the Great Commission, right? Go make disciples of all nations. What's the next thing? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you know where baptism takes place? In the assembly of God's people. Teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. Do you know where teaching is centered based in the rest of the New Testament? It's the pillar and support of the truth is the local assembly. That's why you step from the Great Commission into Acts chapter 2, first gospel message. You know what happens? As many as received his word were what? Baptized. And that day they were added to them. And they were devoting themselves continually to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Do you realize if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're a member of a local assembly, the work of the Great Commission is yours. It's mine. It's ours. It is not the job of some specialists. It's not the job of a select few. It's the job of all the followers of Jesus Christ. It's our job. And it's not done yet. There are still millions, billions sitting in darkness. And we have a job to do. And every one of us have a part in that. Because what Paul says here to the Romans is, is to help them understand that there's a part of the world on the other side of them, right? He's in Macedonia, they're in Rome. There's a part of the world on the other side of them, Spain, where Christ has not been preached. And he writes to them so that they will help him on his way. That they will be a partner with him in it. They will get engaged in it. They will be a part of that task. So like we've said throughout this conference, we need to lift our eyes. I mentioned Yemen on purpose because in the city next to mine, Allen Park, city next to mine, Melvindale, 40% of the population is now Yemeni. I live five miles from the largest mosque in North America. I live just five minutes from the largest, largest city in America that has a Muslim majority, right? So God in his providence is bringing people to us that we could reach for Christ who would be able to go back to those places where it's going to be hard for us to go. We got to lift up our eyes and see that. God is placing the opportunity right at our door. We need to rise up by his grace to that task. But here's also why I'm sharing this with all of you, because you're going, I'm not a missionary, but here's what I'm saying to you. In, that, in this end of the, 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 the pile of humanity, right? In this end, the places where these people are are some of the most difficult places for people to get to. Right? We have, we have one of our graduates in Central Asia Muslim country, restricted access. Which means he can't get in without some kind of platform or legitimate base to be there. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to throw this challenge out to you. Some of you, you're studying for majors that you would be the perfect partner 
to go there and do the work that you've trained for and provide the platform for the spread of the gospel among people who have no chance to hear. And you could go and be a part of seeing someone from an unreached or unengaged people group brought to faith in Christ and one day gathered before the Lamb to sing his praises because you had eyes to see that there's so much still to do and every one of us can have a part in it. There's not a person in this room who knows Jesus who can't be a part of this task. So, so let me challenge you to, to, to raise your eyesight so that when you spend your whole life and you come to the end of it and you step up before Jesus Christ, that you will have spent your life to see people who had never heard the name of Christ become worshipers. Glorify God for his mercy and spend all of eternity with, with that Yemeni or Uzbeki or Turk or that tribe in Southeast Asia that no one's presenting the gospel to or that people group tucked away somewhere that, that needs someone to go that you prayed and partnered with people to take the name of Jesus to them. Can you imagine if even just a room this size became passionate and serious about that? What God could do for his glory in calling out a people for his namesake. Will you see it? Will you embrace it? Will you take the baton that was passed to us by the generations before us? And let's keep running the race until Jesus comes back. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that someone brought the gospel to us, that we were the recipients of faithfulness that advanced that message, and we want to glorify you for your mercy. Lord, please give us a heart for the nations to see the opportunity that is out in front of us with so, much so many resources, so many ways that we can get the gospel to places that have never heard? Or would you stir the imagination of your people about what could be done? May they use their gifts and abilities for the cause of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.